Welcome to They Get It. My name's Kelsey, and my co-host Emma and I love direct-to-consumer brands. Whether it's an amazing customer experience or a really killer social strategy, this podcast will feature the brands and founders who just get it. So on today's episode, we got to speak with Courtney Watkins. She is the founder of Mine and Yours, which is the fastest growing resale brand in Canada. Let that sink in. And so Courtney will tell you a little bit more about her background, but what's really special is she initially started in you know, kind of the celebrity stylist trend spotting kind of field, and then quickly identified that there was a giant resale opportunity, especially in Vancouver, Canada. And then lo and behold, a couple of years later, mine and yours was born. And so I think she's got really cool perspective on, quite frankly, a, a model that we've never really explored before. Yeah. Oh, it's so interesting. And yeah, like this space is just blowing up and I think it's going to continue doing that, which is great because it's sustainable. You know, it's a lot of the things that we stand for and the types of guests we try to bring on. So I think it's such a natural fit that we're learning more about the resale industry. And yeah, Courtney was just really fun to chat with. Yeah, she's so sweet. The other thing I find cool about mine and yours and why we were originally interested in having Courtney on um, is because they do more than just handbags. I think of so many resale brands, if you will, or stores, whatever you really want to call them. They're much more boutique and they deal with a smaller number of very specific products. But I think where Courtney kind of hit her stride was an offering you know, a a complete experience. And so you can go in, you can buy everything from Celine to Mm -hmm. Chanel to Dior to Prada, you name it, she's got it, I promise you. But it's also way more than just handbags. There are accessories, there's apparel, there's a whole bunch of even men's and women's products, which is awesome. And I think that's a huge factor as to why mine and yours is just so successful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think talking through her business model too is really interesting and some of the ways that you know she's kind of differentiated um from the industry is is really cool to hear about so yeah lots of good stuff in this episode and it was a good learning experience for me because you know like I said I don't know a ton about this space but I love a designer handbag so right up my alley (laughs) (laughs) right up your alley should we get into it let's do it Welcome back to another episode. Today's going to be a fun one. We have Courtney Watkins here with us, who is the founder of Mine and Yours Co., which is a resale, uh, fashion resale company. So Courtney, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into all the specifics, tell us the background of Mine and Yours. How did you get into the resale industry and what's the journey been like? Uh, yeah, so I um, always loved fashion. Uh, moved down to LA right after right after high school to go to fashion school, and then was kind of back and forth between LA and Vancouver. And down in LA, they had a lot of these very cool curated secondhand stores that also made it really easy to sell. Um, up in Vancouver, they had all of the stores were kind of your typical grandma's consignment store is, is what we called them. Um, Mm -hmm. so really saw a gap in the market, um, a gap in the market for something that made it easy, fun, and cool. And, um, I, I had stepped out of the fashion industry for a few years and I was actually running a sawmill. So very different. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Family business, family business. I didn't necessarily, yeah, choose it. 
but knew I wanted to get back in the fashion industry and just put it out there. I said, I, I need to do something. Uh, I need to get back into fashion, whether it's a side hustle or something full time. And a friend introduced me to my previous business partner and who had also lived in LA and we got together and six months later, we opened our first mine and yours. Very cool. But Courtney, I'm curious, like if there was a family business in play and you had this passion, you know, to get into the fashion industry, was that something your parents were just like totally cool with? Or what was that transition like saying, okay, I'm going to actually leave the family business and go pursue my passion? Yeah. My parents were always really supportive of fashion. Like I remember graduating at 16 and being like, I can't move down to LA yet, but I really want to go there. And they're like, if this is what you want to do, you should do it. And then never pushed me into the family business. There was reasons I kind of needed to be there. So I said to them, I'm here when you need me, but I just, I want to start doing something in fashion. And they were, they were actually really, really supportive. Okay, great. What would you say is one of the biggest misconceptions about this industry? What have you learned about it? I Luckily for us, I feel like one of the biggest misconceptions is changing. Uh, it used to be, and you know, I probably even had it a bit before I started. It used to be just the the around secondhand being um, dirty or not being able to find things, or you know, that walking into a store and having it smell. Um, so that I, I, you know, I feel like when we started eight years ago was kind of the conception of secondhand shopping. It was more thrift shopping. But over, especially even the last three years, that uh, that that has really changed. And I think most people now know that you can still find really good quality items and have a great, more high-end shopping experience just with better prices and secondhand product. I think you nailed it. And I think the key to that <laughs> is the label that you're, um, you know, reselling. Obviously, it's a big difference between, you know, estate sales where you're literally just piling through a bunch of you know, people's unwanted goods versus actually going out and seeking out specific pieces. But before we get into all of that, I'm curious if you're young and consignment or secondhand kind of is a dirty word, how did you decide that that's where you were going to commit the next five, 10 years of your life? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I was thinking about doing a rental company at that point. Mm, I had used Rent the Runway down in the US and again, saw that there was nothing like it up here. But then we looked at, um, we looked at secondhand and I just, I saw it gaining popularity in LA. And I kind of know that, you know, things in the States, things in LA and New York usually trickle here a little while after. So I just knew that the timing was right. Amazing. Yeah, I figured that was probably the case. And having such good proximity to the people who were doing it already helps you replicate only what works and you leave behind everything that doesn't. Did you have any mentors or any other stores that were doing this that you wanted to replicate? There was a couple in the in the US, like so decades was one. It was even a little more high end. And then Wasteland was very similar to what we wanted to replicate, but even better. Uh, merchandising than uh, than Wasteland. Okay, so let's hear a little bit more about what that process for authentication looks like and how you determine um, the value of your products. Yeah, so it depends on uh, what the item is, but when people bring, uh, if it's clothing, shoes, or lower price point handbags, then we it goes through our in-house authentication. So we look at you know the steam, stitching, fabric, labels, 
and compare it to photos that we have online or product that we have in store. And then if it's a handbag, we use a third-party company called Entropy. And they are, it's kind of like a little magnifying glass hooked up to an iPhone. And you take photos of the bag, uh, the the all the different materials of the bag, and it uploads it to its kind of algorithm and lets it know, uh, lets you know whether it can verify authenticity or not. Okay, very interesting. And so it sounds like there's um, like a lot of infrastructure that's being built around the resale industry as this trend grows. Would that be safe to assume? Yeah, before I know there's, you know, Louis Vuitton has been talking about putting microchips in their bags. And previously, there's always been date codes, a lot of the companies date codes, but nothing, um, nothing to really make it easy for resellers to verify. And uh, we're seeing that, you know, there might be changes in that and whether that's something we'll be able to access as a reseller or just those companies alone, that might end up, you know, taking the resale market to themselves, uh, we'll kind of, we'll have to wait and see. Ah, interesting. So I was curious before we got on this conversation, how Louis felt about, you know, the resale market and other people kind of benefiting from turning over these products. And so, yeah, maybe you can tell us more about that. Are they helpful to you as a reseller or are they looking to kind of take that over themselves? Yeah, I, well, that's, that's a good question. I don't know, but I know that Chanel is very unhelpful. Like they'll sue you uh, for selling oh, wow. items. Um, yeah, even speaking of Shopify, like we weren't able to accept a certain type of payments on Shopify because we sold secondhand Chanel. So they are, they're very, very unhelpful. Uh, Louis isn't that helpful either. Like they, you can't go in and authenticate through them. Uh, probably some sort of liability that they have. But there are and there are other brands that are starting to take on the reselling themselves. So Isabel Morant is starting to have a um, a platform on their site where you can resell Isabel Morant back to them, and same with Balenciaga. Yeah, that makes sense. I actually I heard oh man, this is a lot of years ago now, but I had heard at some point in order to be um, to to resell like Nike and Adidas. I think those are the brands. In order to resell their products, you needed to be a certified Nike reseller. Is there anything like that in kind of the luxury label market? There isn't, but that's what we were told by Shopify that we had to have was a Chanel certificate um, reseller authentication. And there's there's no such thing. It doesn't exist. Oh, wow. Hmm. This is also new and interesting to me, this whole um, industry. So do you find that a lot of it is very clientele-based? Like um, you're, you're seeing a lot of recurring customers or is it mostly new or what does that split look like? Yeah, we're about, it's about a 50% split from recurring customers to new customers and our suppliers are even higher. So we get a lot of a really good product comes from clients that come in and sell to us you know, maybe a few times a year, emptying out their wardrobe and making new space for it. Mm-hmm. And then do you, what about the split between shopping in person versus shopping online um, in the resale industry? Like, do you find customers prefer to be able to come see the items in person um, or is it kind of split? Yeah. So before COVID, we did only about 20% of our business was online. So the majority of it was our brick and mortar store. Obviously, COVID has changed people's buying habits and 
you know, when we were closed, it was a hundred percent of our revenue was was online. Now it's gone back. Uh, it's gone back to about a 50-50 split. Uh, but I also find a lot of people are seeing our products online, seeing them on our like our new arrival stories every Monday. We get so many people asking questions about products, but a lot of times, especially if it's a $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 bag, they still want to come in and see it. So while they're finding out about it from our Instagram or website, they're still coming in and then purchasing it directly after they've you know tried it on, felt it, and uh, and really seen it in person. Yeah, that was actually a question I wanted to ask you today. So amazing that you got in front of it because it's still a big purchase at the end of the day. It's not like it's 50 bucks. If you're spending several thousand dollars on something, you want to go make sure that it actually matches up to the photos that you've seen and the quality rating that it received and things like that. I totally get it. Um, I'm curious on the supply side of things, how do you know what will sell and what to accept into your store? Yeah, that is, um, it, it's a lot of it's by discretion, but it's if, you know, if I would wear it or I think one of my friends would wear it was what I always, what I went on before. Um, and now we go off whether it's a, a brand that we know that does well or that we accept. And uh, we typically only buy in season. So we're buying, you know, right now we're buying for fall and just whether it's a, a style that we think will sell over, we have, you know, years of data in our, in our system. So we can look up and see even if we had that exact same product and what it sold for. Love the data-driven approach. I think that's so smart. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you find like with margins and that sort of thing and with the people who are selling through you, um, what happens if, you know, it's not moving and you need to change the pricing? Yeah. So it depends. It depends on um, a lot. Most of our product is actually bought outright. So we offer cash on the spot or store credit instead of consigning. So at that oh, point, wow. yeah, at that point, if we lower the price, we take the hit on it. So we will offer a slightly lower rate up front, but that's because we buy it before we've sold it. And then, and then if, you know, if we have a sale or if we're doing, you know, we've had it for three months or four months and we have to mark it down, we are the ones that take the hit. If it's a consigned item, usually we agree up front with, you know, our markdown terms are after three months, it goes 10% off. And then after four or five months, it goes 20% off. We contact you before we go any lower than that. But because we are a small business, we like to be really flexible. So we also give our clients the option to say like, no, this is, you know, I'll sell it to you, but only at this price, like contact me before you mark it down. Like I don't want to go any lower and we'll make a note in our system and we'll do that then. Okay. I don't know much about this space, but can you provide a little bit more context on when you might, you know, take on a product on consignment versus buying it outright? What are the situational factors there? Yeah, we uh, we offer only offer consignment on items that we're reselling for $500 or more. So lower price point items, Got we it. only offer uh, cash buyouts or store credits. And I don't know if that's, that's not necessarily an industry standard. Uh, most companies only do one or the other. So most only offer cash uh, buyouts, which there aren't that many of them, especially in the luxury field, or only offer consignment. Uh, We just, we choose to give our customers um, more options. Yeah. Amazing. I'm also curious, um, my boyfriend right now is starting a like 
I don't know, like a, it's a vintage clothing store, but it's not the labels. It's more so just your everyday clothing. Mm -hmm. And what I'm noticing it is, is it is such a heavy lift. Every time you get a new piece, doing all the photography, writing all the descriptions, doing all of the sizing, um, even like repairing certain items and, you know, setting the stage so that it can actually be purchased. What does that process look like for you guys? Yeah, just like you said, very time consuming. So each item comes in, we price it out, uh, it gets uploaded into our inventory, labels printed out, then we have an office right next to our store, gets transferred to our office, um, whether it's an accessory, we have a station for accessory shoots, and then we do on model shoots once a week. We, you know, shoot the product, steam everything, stuff it, clean it, make sure it's in its best condition. Then um, shoot it, edit the photos, upload photos, write a product description, and then it gets posted on our website. So it is it is definitely time consuming, uh, time consuming. But I would I would say we've got a really good flow of a system. But it you know took us I don't know six years. Wow, yeah, no, not a not a quick journey to get all of that sorted out. But I can imagine too. That makes all the difference when you're selling online is really having that high quality imagery um, and that sort of thing. Are there other things that you find really help build trust with the consumers um, when you're selling online? Yeah. I mean, having our physical location, like the majority of our online customers are still in BC or Vancouver and they visited our store. It's just so much easier to, to build that trust and that relationship with customers when you have seen them face to face, even though, you know, the world is getting more digital and, and I imagine our online sales growing even quicker than our in store, but we just really find we, you know, create a long, a much like a long standing relationship with our customers and suppliers when we are in person. Amazing. Now that people look at you and they see mine and yours taking off and they're starting to get more acclimated to this type of model? Are you seeing competitors pop up? And and if so, how are you remaining differentiated? Yeah, I've seen when we when we started, we were the only ones offering cash on the spot. And we were the only ones that branded ourselves as more of a luxury. And now even in the last couple of years, there's been, you know, smaller ones pop up a lot of Instagram only. Um, we there's a couple a couple things that make us unique is one just our our payment options the fact that we offer cash on the spot store credit and consignment um, the other is just having the in person being able to come to our store try the product on touch it feel it um, and then just the the last is the um, the selection of our product like we really have the best selection that I've seen in you know in Vancouver if not Canada. And having not just handbags, but having the handbags, the shoes, the clothing, you know, we're, we're almost like your whole Renfrew, but everything's just highly discounted. I love that. I love a discounted Holt Renfrew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, as we were speaking about, you know, this space has really shifted in the past few years um, towards you know, it's more of a trend. It's more normalized to buy resale items and buy vintage. And I think a lot of that is, you know, the sustainability aspect of it. Um, where do you see this industry continuing to go into? Or what do you think, how do you think it will continue to evolve? Yeah, it's uh, growing quickly. And like you said, there is, or when you asked about competitors, there's a lot more people pop popping up 
but there's also so many more people shopping and selling secondhand that I think there's room for even more, you know, even more people to come in the industry. Um, before, you know, even our high end uh, suppliers, when they used to sell to us, it'd be like, you know, don't tell anyone I'm selling because it was almost like a dirty secret. They were getting rid of their clothes for money. And now, you know, we see them posting about buying an item. Um, from mine and yours on their social because they're being smart with their money. They're being sustainable. Like now it's kind of cool to, to come in and shop secondhand. Wow. Oh, I love that. And you, there's just so many benefits, you know, helping the environment, really helping the industry and also giving these products, you know, more life, having more people wear them and actually value them in different ways. Um, I'm, I'm a little curious on who are your buyers and what are their purchase interests? Are these mostly people who are also purchasing direct from these brands and then they're using mine and yours to kind of supplement their collections or are they exclusively shopping secondhand? What do they look like? Yeah. Um, I would say it's a pretty, a pretty, um, wide variety of customers. You know, we have, we have that, we have that girl who is coming in and trading in all of her Aritzia dresses to save up for her first designer bag and really making that you know, her very first designer purchase with mine and yours. And then we also have the customer who would have bought the St. Laurent bag full price at Holtz, but, you know, sees it on our Instagram and is like, oh my God, you know, a thousand dollars off. Like I'll take it in a second and doesn't, doesn't even think twice about the purchase. Mm-hmm. No, that, that definitely makes sense. And I mean, you've been doing this for how many years now? Eight years now. Eight years. Wow. And so what have been some of the biggest learnings over the last eight years? I know that's a big question. Yeah. Um, gosh, some of the biggest learnings. Um, I would say one of them is like, you're never going to have it all figured out. Uh, and just that mm. kind of imposter syndrome. Like now that I'm in entrepreneur groups and talking to other people who even, you know, run companies way larger than me, like, we all kind of barely know what we're doing, you know, like I think from the outside, sometimes it looks like, like everyone's got this plan and everything's got it so fig- so figured out and it can be a bit intimidating, but we're really all just learning as we go. I think that's such a good point. And it's something we hear a lot on the show too, is like, you know, it looks so great from the outside, but actually behind the scenes, there's always something changing, always something new to figure out. Um, But I think that's what makes entrepreneurs, right? Is like being able to have the resilience to just keep going throughout all those ups and downs. Mm -hmm. Do you see yourself as an entrepreneur for life now? Do you think you'd ever switch your path? Yeah, I've, um, I've thought about it. And that's why So I had a business partner when I first started mine and yours. And she was so entrepreneurial. Once mine and yours was up and running, she had three side hustles on the go. And we came together and I was like, okay, like this is I know this is what I want to do. Like I love mine and yours. I love meeting the suppliers going into their home, buying the clothes like this just I don't know it feels so right for me that um and that she, and she wanted to start a bunch of other businesses and not be so full time in mine and yours so that's when we decided that I would buy her out but in saying that I have lots of ideas um but it's just not the you know not the time or the capacity to execute on them so I could see myself 
you know, either investing in some other companies or getting a good team to maybe uh, get behind and start some of the other ideas that I have. But now what I'm trying to do is focus on mine and yours, though, you know, those those shiny objects sometimes really grab my attention. Oh my gosh, Courtney, a girl after my own heart. Literally, Emma probably weekly has to sit me down and be like, Kelsey, one step at a time. Let's not just go try to boil the entire ocean right away. But it is hard. You get a little bit of the bug and you get the excitement and the adrenaline of growing mine and yours. And of course, you're like, okay, what's next? Where are we going? What's happening? And I actually feel like that's human nature, not to be able to just sit in the moment and appreciate how far you've come and always be looking ahead. It's a a tough thing to get your head around. Yeah. And like the beginning stages are so fun and exciting and really like putting procedures in place and operationalizing everything is not as fun and exciting. And that's kind of what we've you know been working on the last few years. But in order to scale and grow and open new locations, like I know that's what we need to do. But yeah, sometimes I'm like, ooh, what's this kombucha company? This looks fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want to come back to that because my one of my other questions is like, where do we go from here? How do we scale this? But before we move on completely, um, I want to ask about the split between you and your business partner. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context as to why I care about this. Almost every single founder that we've brought on to this podcast has at some point been overwhelmed or thought that they could kind of share the work or whatever it was, the motivations may be different. That doesn't matter as much, but they've gone into this business partner type of relationship with someone. Sometimes it's a friend, sometimes it's a colleague, sometimes it's someone kind of random that has, you know, complementary skill sets. And then what we find is the natural evolution of these businesses cause people to double down or to kind of take their foot off the gas and naturally people go their separate ways. Can you go into detail on those initial conversations conversations with your business partner when you were recognizing that maybe you were more invested than she was? Yeah. Um, I, I found them really hard actually in order to first, uh, in order to first bring them up. I, I told myself a lot of stories of why she would be upset that I wanted to do this. Um, and, uh, and was kind of, was actually quite stressed about the first initial time that I brought it up. Um, but it was just, like I didn't want to continue building a business that I was putting more effort into and more work into and then and just kind of have that resentment and then I also didn't want to take away like I watched her excitement when she started this mastermind group and when she started these other things and I just saw I'm like okay this is this is what you're really good at and this is where your passion is so we um we actually we had an outside facilitator come in a business coach that we used before and oh, they wow. yeah I love that that really really helped because you both especially when you're coming in and we you know we didn't have all the paperwork drawn up quite properly of like we had a shareholders agreement but like when one person is going to leave how do you value the business we didn't have any of that so of course our valuations you know were pretty off and coming to that conclusion and coming to that number. Uh, having a, ha- we had a business evaluator, but then also having a third party, um, uh, having a third party that didn't, didn't pick sides was, uh, was really helpful. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I can imagine. And I totally 
can appreciate how it would be hard going into those conversations. And like you said, these stories you can tell yourself and you can kind of talk yourself out of bringing something up because it's uncomfortable. So kudos to you for, you know, doing that and and doing it the right way by the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, and I probably could have done it sooner rather than like having the conversation in my head for probably six months before I had it out loud. <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> but I did it. And we were always told, everyone told us, Business partnerships are so hard. They never work out. And we just, we didn't believe it because at the beginning we had so much fun together. Uh, it was, it was actually a really, really great partnership. And the business was, especially coming from a sawmill that was just not that fun. Like it, it barely felt like a job. It was just really a really great time. And uh, yeah, it was four, four and a half years or five years of being with someone, you know, almost, almost every day at the beginning. So it is kind of like a divorce, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. um, with finances and and emotions and everything. So it can be, um, Yeah. yeah, it can, it can be a bit tough. No kidding. Yeah. And I know you said, looking back on that, like you'd wish you'd maybe started that process sooner. Is there anything else looking back that, you would have changed about that? Yeah, I, I would have changed my lawyer. <laughs> um, <laughs> Why? Um, you know what? He was just a bit of a bulldog. And at the end, he didn't do a couple things. And then she kind of thought maybe I was I was trying to run some things past her. But he, I just think having a lawyer that was, you know, he wanted me to get the most. But I think since we were friends, having a lawyer that was just... I don't know, a little, um, a little nicer, a little more gentle would have made our, I think it would have made the transition out just a bit smoother. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's good advice. That is so timely. I'm, I'm thinking about all of these like legal services, financial services. You really need people in these roles that you can trust. How, how do you go about finding someone? Like, obviously it'll never be the same exact scenario, but have you found professional services that you prefer to work with? Yeah. Now I have a lawyer who's great. And I look at her and like, she has the same values as me. And if I look back, Uh, this guy I got from a, um, he was referred to me by someone I really trusted, but they, you know, just didn't need the same type of lawyer. Um, so whether it's a lawyer, an accountant, anything like really, yeah. Do you get along with them? Do they have the same value? mm -hmm. Cause that, you know, it might matter more than you think it does. Oh Yeah. Oh yeah, 100%. How many people have we seen they grow up best friends or even worse they grow up siblings and then they get into business together and it all goes into flames? I mean, like this is really delicate stuff and if you don't have the right people sitting across from you, you know, you you have a lot on the line. There's yeah. a lot of risk there. Yeah, me and my when I left the mill, I me and my brother weren't talking a lot. Like we definitely yeah. had a strained relationship at that point and that was one of the reasons wanting to leave as well. I'm like, okay, and, you know, I'd, I'd rather, I don't want a business partner with family. I'd rather have a brother. And now we, you know, we get along so well. But I think if we continued to run the company together for the last eight years, it would have been, um, it just would have been a different relationship. Yeah, I totally see that. I mean, it's great advice. And like hindsight's twenty twenty, of course. But I think that's a lesson for every single person that's listening. It's like, what are you willing to sacrifice in the relationship? Because yeah, it sounds great at the beginning, but you have no idea how it's going to go. Maybe you'll exit your company and you'll both be completely on the same page, but you also have to be prepared for the opposite, right? When things don't line up perfectly. I'm curious, um, 
this might be a bit of a cheeky question, but looking back, having a business partner and doing it on your own, obviously you're friends with your business partner. So let's leave that part out of it. But if you were to give advice to people starting out, would you recommend that they find someone to start a business with or take it solo? Um, uh, I, I had so much fun with the, with my partner. I, even though we've split now, I still think it's great to have a business partner if, um, you know, if it makes sense. But what I would say is have all those tough conversations up front. What, you know, do you want Great to advice. grow? Do you want, this is a lifelong business. And even though they might be uncomfortable, like what if we hate each other in three years, what are we going to do? And just have those conversations up front rather than thinking everything's going to be great for the next 10 years. And you guys will be best friends forever running the company together. Um, and then, but if you, you know, it's, it can be cheaper to have a partner, right. Rather than hiring everyone out for all mm-hmm, the different totally. roles, especially if you're kind of bootstrapping in at the beginning, you know, we both didn't take a salary for the first three years. If I was having to pay someone to do all of the work, it would have been, um, you know, it would have cost more. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is such, such good insight. I'm loving this. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> I'm also curious just to hear about you know, when you look at yourself as an entrepreneur, are there things that stand out, certain habits that you think are most attributable to your success? Hmm. Um, I, I feel like I'm very resourceful, not necessarily a habit, but I just can, you know, I don't know, think outside of the box or like get, get shit done essentially. Um, which in, which has really helped. I have I love like freedom and flexibility and travel and have really never had a structured schedule, though what I've been finding over the last few years is that that really hasn't helped. And reading like I read Atomic Habits and I'm, you know, trying to like such a good book. Yeah, it's been really good and trying to schedule out my day. And I I'm I'm still struggling with it, but I've I find that that like scheduling and has just, um, has, has helped free up my time a little bit. No kidding. Yeah. I, I completely agree. It's honestly, I feel like I'm my own guinea pig. I'm reading all of these books on how to prioritize what it is you focus on and, and do the, um, like the number one problem activities and kind of let everything else go. But for an entrepreneur, when the success of this business is literally riding on one person's shoulders, it's hard to be able to take your foot off the gas. How do you make sure that you don't spend every waking minute on mine and yours? Oh, I'm a, I'm a work hard, play hard kind of girl. So I've, I feel girl. Like I've got that <laughs> down. Like we're opening a new location at the end of September and I'm going on a Sardinia sailing trip at the end of August. And my team's like, really, you're still going? I'm like, I've been planning this trip for two years. Like it's happening. You've got it. So wow. oh, I love that. I love it. Um, I mean, especially I- after the the couple years we've had. Exactly. Yeah. Like maybe I even take it too far, but I also, you know, last night I was up in bed doing emails till one o'clock in the morning. And then today I'm taking off early on wow. Friday to go to the island. So I, I just find balance that way. Like sometimes I'm putting in, you know, 14, 15 hour days, but I do that in order. Like I take the weekend off, you know? Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's the beauty of entrepreneurship is that you can really make it work for you. You don't, you're not reporting into anyone who says you have to work these specific hours. And obviously it can be dangerous because especially when it's your own thing and you're passionate about it, you just want to work on it all the time. But I think it is nice to be able to kind of, yeah, build it in a way that, that works for you and is sustainable for you. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Yeah. It'd be tough to go back to a scheduled job after eight years and a few years before that of, of kind of creating my own schedule. Oh, I completely believe it. After, you know, recently leaving my nine to five, it's the thought of going back to that is already tough to think about. Oh, yeah. Makes my skin crawl a bit. (laughs) Um, Well, we could keep chatting on and on because this has been such a fun conversation, but we want to be mindful of your time. But as we were talking about before, something we ask everyone is who do you think gets it? Sarah Blakely. Oh, great answer. Why does she get it? Um, she just seems to have like live work balance, uh, supporting other entrepreneurs, you know, had an idea and just really ran with it. And I don't know, there's something about her. I just, I just want to be friends with her. Can I take a stab at what that might be? (laughs) Because she's, you're, you're not the first person that's brought Sarah up as like their inspiration for who gets it. And I think it's because she's showing up exactly as who she is. There's no like putting a front on. She has no makeup and like 90% of her Instagram stories. She's so real. She'll tell you when she's having a terrible day. And I think for the rest of us out here putting in the work and grinding, it's so nice to see that she's not above it. You know what I mean? It's nice to have her in our corner. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah, good stuff. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for coming on. It has been such a pleasure chatting with you and I can't wait for the next one. Awesome. Yeah, nice to meet you too. That was amazing. I had so many questions and you guys, I showed such good restraint trying to keep it focused, trying not to ask every question that popped into my brain. But Courtney just did such a good job basically bringing two noobs up to speed on this industry and how it all works. I think the biggest takeaway for me though is not even when it comes to the model. The biggest takeaway for me was her the part where she was talking about splitting from her co-founder. I mean, come on, this is literally something that almost every single entrepreneur is going to experience in some capacity. And hearing her advice of having the hard conversations up front, I think was so powerful. It's, you know, it's not too far. Mm -hmm. Actually, if you equate this to like dating, it's not that far off of being upfront with what it is you want in a relationship and making sure that people are actually compatible and not wasting six months, eight months, or in her case, eight years building something with someone who has different plans for it. I think if people can take one thing away mm-hmm. from this episode, it is go and push where it hurts now to save yourself you know, turmoil eight years down the line. I completely agree because I think, yeah, it gets harder and harder the longer you put it off. So yeah, I think ripping off the bandaid, having those conversations is so important. And another thing that really stuck out for me, and maybe this is just because of the phase of life I'm in right now, but just that reminder that like entrepreneurship, it's all you. Like you get to decide what your schedule it is. You get to decide how hard you want to work on it. You you get to like make your own life. And I think, you know, as I've transitioned out of working full time into doing my own thing, it's it's definitely top of mind for me right now. It's like you get this opportunity to create your life and now it's like, okay, how do you want to do that? And it also takes a lot of, you know, 
intrinsic motivation. Like you don't have someone telling you what you need to do and when you need to do it by anymore. It's all up to you. And there's freedom in that. And there's also, you know, it's a struggle, but I think that was a really cool takeaway for me from this episode. Totally agree. Yeah. Great reminders all around and really just a good um, episode to, to kind of bring that top of mind. Mm-hmm. We love to see it. So we'll stop babbling now. We'll let you get back to your day. But thank you for coming and listening to this episode if you've made it this far. Um, we appreciate our listeners so much. And as always, we love subscribers, rates, reviews. They really help us out as we build up um, the podcast. So thank you in advance for doing that. Have a beautiful week and we'll see you next week. See you next week.